So today we're talking about Christian boldness, and as I said, this could have had a number of different names. Um, it could have been, you know, how to show courage in the face of fear. It could have been, you know, overcoming fear. It could have been the lesson of the loaves and the, or the bread, or it, or it simply could have been the nearness of Jesus. But we've landed on Christian boldness, and so what do we mean by boldness? Well, history has been full of Christians who've demonstrated boldness in situations where they ought to have none. There are countless stories of martyrs who have been given the, the choice of recant or die, and in the face of that threat, they've said, you know what, you've got, no, you've got nothing to threaten me with. You're, sen- you're sending me to my master, to my saviour, and so I will go with confidence and with peace and with joy. But you know, actually my favourite martyr story comes from an almost martyr, by the name of Oregon. He's a church father, and uh, he was living in a time of intense persecution, and he just loved the idea of martyrdom. He was like, these people are just the ultimate Christians, right? They believe and follow Jesus to the point where they're willing to lay down their life, and I want to be like that. He was a young lad. He was 18, and the Romans were coming through his town, and uh, he was like, I want to go out. I want to run out into the streets and yell out, I'm a Christian, come take me, and then you know, have his glorious death of martyrdom. But um, the only obstacle in his way was his mother, who hid all of his clothes and said, if you're going to do that, you've got to do it naked. Um, so fortunately for probably everyone involved, he, he lived through that and he ended up writing a bunch of really valuable works for the church. What about Maximilian Kolb, who was a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp who were giving a public demonstration to deter people from further escape attempts, and they were picking people out random and sending them to the starvation chamber for a tea party? Not really. Um, There was a guy who was uh, chosen at random, and when he was chosen, he fell to his knees and he cried out, my wife, my family. And Maximilian Kolb was a single man, and he stepped forward, and he said, I will take his place. I mean, full-on Hunger Games style, right? That's the original Hunger Games. And out of a mixture of probably amusement, confusion, and curiosity, the, uh, the Nazi uh, officers let him take his place and sent him down into the chamber with the rest of them, about a, a dozen or so, I can't quite remember. But the Christian boldness that Maximilian Kolb came with meant that he led those men in worship, in prayer. He led every single one of them to Christ before they all eventually starved and went to meet their saviour, and he was the last one left in the chamber celebrating the the lives that were saved. Um, And then he eventually died as well, and um, they all went to be with Jesus. Incredible Christian boldness. Or what about the three in the furnace in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, as they were thrown into a furnace that was heated so hot that the guards that threw them in perished. Incredible Christian boldness. Although some of you might be saying, that's a cheeky example, it's from the Old Testament, can't be Christian boldness. And I say, don't let theology get in the way of a good illustration. (laughs) And all of you who are laughing are clearly not Baptists. Um... No, I say, really, look, the answer there is actually a better theology, right? Because the spirit that empowers their boldness is the same spirit that gives us boldness uh, in, the, in the New Testament. Right, those are all pretty extreme examples, and, and you're, you're wondering where I'm going today, and, and 
I'm not going to tell you to lay down your life for your faith because we're not in that situation. Although, if you are, God does want us to do that, right? But what about the young woman who is converted? She's a new convert. She goes to university, and every break time, she's harassed by a lecturer, by a university professor for her faith, who tries to deconstruct and question and, and beat down her belief and she feels totally inexperienced and totally unqualified and often ends these sessions in tears, but she never gives up. She never lets go of her faith. And that's Christian boldness. Eventually, that lecturer would come to her and would say, what's, what's up with you? Why haven't you given up yet? And she would go on to explain the gospel to him and say, you know, I don't know all the answers, but what I do know is Jesus died for my sins and nothing's gonna take that away. And she would eventually lead that lecturer to Christ. That's Christian boldness. What about the mum and dad who are struggling to make ends meet financially and yet they get together with their family and pray every week and say, we are blessed, we are provided for, God knows our needs and we're going to get through. That's Christian boldness. Or what about the young person who's given the diagnosis that they dreaded and rather than curling up in a ball in the corner and weeping, although that would be a natural response, they say, I may not understand, but I know someone who does. I may not know where this is going, but I know someone who does. And I know that my God is bigger than my problems. And I choose to trust and choose to be confident in him. That's Christian boldness. I wonder to what kind of Christian boldness is God calling you this morning? We're going to look in Mark chapter 6, so if you have a physical Bible, feel free to turn to it, otherwise we will have the words on the screen. We're going to take a look at a passage where the disciples had an opportunity to display this boldness in the face of fear. They were either going to let fear dictate their understanding of their reality, or they were going to let this boldness uh, instead. And as a spoiler, they didn't get it. But neither do we all the time, so that's why we're here. All right, so verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up a mountainside to pray. What's just happened here? Well, Jesus has just performed this incredible miracle where the crowds have been gathered. There's been about 5,000 people hearing him speak, and they're in a deserted place. And then suddenly, everybody realizes, well, you know what? there's actually not enough food in any of these surrounding villages to get everybody fed. Everyone's going to go hungry. And Jesus, out of compassion, sees their need, and he says, what food do we have? And they say, well, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And he says, that's plenty. And he takes them, and he blesses them, and they break them, and they manage to feed 5,000 people with these five loaves of bread and these two fish. And when they collected the baskets full afterwards, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Incredible miracle. And you know, Pat says that he's seen every single miracle in the New Testament except for walking on water. And um, we'll get to that later in today's passage. But you know what? I would like to see this miracle in my house. <laughs> Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? The kids are saying, I'm hungry. You go to the fridge and you open it up and you're like, I swear we went to the grocery store two days ago. Where is all the food gone? You know, just once I want to close the fridge, just pray a blessing, open it, and it's all there. Save us the trip to the grocery store. And you know what? Even if it's just with the milk, Lord, we need more milk. You know, as a family, we go through 
a, an absurd amount of milk. There are four in our household, and we go through between 11 and 12 litres of milk a week. Half of our family is under four, <laughs> all right? The math there is scary, all right? I don't look at our bank accounts when we go to buy milk. But, you know, we get the good stuff. The Mulaney Dairies, Gold Top. Those of you who know, this cream at the top makes the coffee taste amazing. Once you go there, you can't go back. You know, it's, if things are tight, it's like, I'm sorry, honey, we can't fill up the car this week. We've got to buy milk. <laughs> it's just the way that it is. But no, this is a pretty incredible miracle where, where Jesus multiplies all of these, uh, these, this food. Everybody gets fed. And then there's a sense of urgency here. He says, you know, immediately he sent them away and Jesus sent the disciples away and he just had to kind of be alone. Probably an introvert, to be honest. It's very introverted behavior, but that's beside the point. We see him do this a couple of times where the kind of the, the intensity around his ministry gets so public and, and so large that he has to kind of withdraw and take a step back. Elsewhere in the, in the Gospels, we're given the explanation that you know, he's worried that people are going to take him and try and make him king by force. But really what's going on here is that he needs to follow the plan laid out for him by his father, which is the cross. And can you imagine the temptation in that moment to, to follow a path other than the suffering that Jesus had laid out for him? And that's probably a good lesson, a sermon for another day, um, for you know, not believing the hype um, about yourself if you're, if you're going into a, a place of ministry or a place of success, but following the plan that God has laid out for you. So, at that point, he sends the disciples out uh, into, the, into the lake. He goes away to pray. So, if we go to the next verse. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. All right, he's on the shore, and those of you who know the Sea of Galilee, it's not a sea, it's a lake. Um, at its widest point, it's about 10 kilometers, all right? So, if you're a... If you're a team of you know, strong rowers, you should easily make that within about two hours. All right? But here they are, late into the night. He's dismissed the crowds. They're late into the night, and he can still see them. All right? So they're struggling. The wind's been beating against them. They've been going all night. You know, it says that eventually it's shortly before dawn. They've been rowing all night. All right? And so what does Jesus decide to do? Take a shortcut? Just walk across? What are we, how are we supposed to interpret when, he sa- when it says that he was about to pass them by? Well, I've got no idea. What if they didn't see him? What if he made it all the way across? How many times did Jesus do something like this purely for convenience? I don't know. Not a question that we have time for today, but regardless, this is what happens. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. And that's our word boldness there. Take courage, be bold, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, what we see here is these two competing narratives, all right? On one side, you've got the natural narrative, which follows the disciples and all of their reactions. Everything that they do 
is a perfectly natural and understandable reaction. You know what, even back then, seeing a ghost on the water is a really bad thing, okay? Because they believed that dead souls occupied bodies of water, right? You've heard of the, the myth of the, you know, the river Styx, all of these, these souls that couldn't pay the, the toll across, they're, they're stuck, they're trapped, it's kind of a tomb, the water. And so for them to be rowing and struggling, and then for them to see what they thought was a ghost out on the water, they were wetting themselves, maybe. They were terrified, and they had good reason to be. That's a perfectly natural response given the situation. But then on the other side, you've got the supernatural narrative where Jesus, same storm, right? Same storm that's going on over here is going on for Jesus. But he's, I'm imagining the opening scene of Guardians of the Galaxy, headphones in, exploding things going around him. He's just, you know, walking along on the water. This is easy, this is fun. A totally supernatural narrative. It's totally the opposite to what's going on there. Right? Their response is fear, and then Jesus sees them and he's like, hey guys. He hops into the boat and he says, don't be afraid. Have courage. It's me. And these two narratives are kind of colliding. The disciples have some responses. We know firstly that they respond in fear, and secondly they respond in astonishment. And their astonishment is so severe, so significant, that Mark actually gives an explanation. He's kind of, he's like, I need to explain why they were so embarrassed, because it, it seems like, a, why they were, sorry, he was embarrassed at their response. He's like, I need to explain what was going on, because you know that word for amazed is not the kind of one where you're like, wow, that was awesome. Like, I'm so impressed. It's, it's the word astonished. They were confused. They were, they were confounded. They were like, huh? You know, it's, it's like um, that, that meme where the, the lady with the blonde hair, there's like, she, she's got this confused face and there's like these numbers superimposed over the screen. She's just like, huh? You know, all you Gen Ys know what I'm talking about. Anyone older than that, you've got no idea. <laughs> all right? The disciples are just, you know, disciple.exe encountered a problem. It's not running. <laughs> There's, there's something missing. It's, it's not happening for them. They're confused about what's going on. And Mark has to give an explanation. And this is the really strange part, or the, you know, the part that we really have to wrestle with in this passage, because Mark's explanation is that they didn't understand about the bread, about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. So what Mark is implying here is that had they known about the bread, had they understood that lesson, their response would not have been what it was. They wouldn't have been confused and they wouldn't have been afraid. Right, let's, to help us try and understand um, what's going on here, you can separate these into pairs all right, in this passage. So the first pair is the disciples' responses. They, they respond in fear and astonishment, confusion. They don't understand what's going on. Secondly, we've got Jesus' commands. He says, don't be afraid, and he says, take courage, right, which is our word for boldness, and we'll talk about that word in a minute. And then thirdly, Mark gives two explanations. He says, they didn't understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. So here's where we're going this morning. You and I face situations every day which under any normal circumstances would elicit a fear response. By anyone's standards, they might be frightening situations. You lose your job, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, someone you know is in a car accident, 
you receive a diagnosis of a debilitating disease, whatever it might be, we need to get from fear and confusion to boldness and confidence to overcome that fear. So how do we get there? Well, the answer is in the passage and we need to understand about the loaves. But at the same time, no one with a hard heart can understand the truth of God. If we are to understand what God is trying to say, then our hearts need to be softened. And we'll see that those are two related ideas in this particular instance. So, what does it mean about the loaves? And I've got to be honest with you here. When I was preparing, and it, came, it became clear to me that this was kind of the, where the, the passage kind of turned, I wrestled with it for a long time, and I was right in the space of, of the disciples. I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Was it the five and the two? You know, what does the 12 baskets mean? You know, they, they were fed. You could say that, you know, God, God's always going to give you, you know, provision and, and food. But it, it didn't quite seem like enough to sort of realize what was going on in the passage. And then, you know, it suddenly dawned on me through the experience over the last couple of weeks that this is not a lesson that can be understood with your head, right? It's a heart lesson, okay? It's not an intellectual exercise. It is an experiential one. The lesson of the loaves is one that you need to go through before it makes sense. And that's a tough lesson. Some of us, myself especially, need a reminder about that all the time. That you can't just know everything, you can't just understand. And the point is that it can't be fathomed, it must be experienced. Because everything that happens is pointing to Jesus. This is one of the reasons that God uses our experience to teach us things. And one of the reasons that I can't escape standing here giving this message without God choosing to write that message all over the last week of our lives as a family. I'll tell you a story a bit later. This whole time we're asking the question, why? Why is this happening? What's, what's going on? What's, what's the meaning? Whereas instead we should be the asking the question, who? Because when we see a miracle, the point is not to understand it. The point is not to necessarily know that this is how God is working, although that's great to have that revealed. The point is to know the who. Who is behind this miracle? Who is even capable of doing something like this? Who is right next to me in this suffering? Who has the power to overcome what we are going through right now? That is the question that we need to be asking because every single miracle that has ever happened points to Jesus. And that's the point. So how can we learn this lesson experientially? Well, there are three things that we can take from this statement here. Firstly, it proves God's presence in Jesus. The miracle of the loaves proves God's presence in Jesus. No one was able to do that except him, and everybody kind of knew it, which is why he had to withdraw afterwards. Secondly, it demonstrates the power of God over nature, and look, we may as well just lump in everything there, okay? Because to break the laws of physics... You kind of have to be above everything else, all right? You know, no one was coming up to Jesus and saying, excuse me, did you know that the law of conservation says that matter cannot be created or destroyed? And here Jesus is just multiplying, creating food out of nothing, 
right? God's power over nature, and, and thirdly, God's provision in need. Jesus was moved by the need of the crowd in front of him, and he was not going to let that need go unmet. But it happened in a different way than they thought. Okay, did anyone say, you know what I reckon Jesus is going to do here? <laughs> All right, nobody knew what was going on. But God meets our need every time, sometimes not in the way that we can expect. And you know what? It was the same situation on the boat. Because the disciples found themselves surrounded by a situation that would cause them fear. It wasn't until the presence of Jesus was with them in the boat. It wasn't until the storm was calmed by his power over nature, not to mention walking on the water. It wasn't until Jesus saw them in their... He was going to pass them by. But he saw their need and he said, "That's I need to go there. He went to the boat and he met their need. But the disciples didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened and so they could not display Christian boldness in that situation. Church, I feel very strongly about this because God has made our family live it over the last couple of weeks and because you need to know the power of Christian boldness in situations that would otherwise leave you fearful. Because when the martyr is given a choice to recant or die, it's the hope of the persecutor that the fear of death overcomes their faith. But those of you who know Jesus know that our God says he has overcome death and that that has no fear for us because we go to be with him. And you know, when the devil comes against you with schemes such as this, he's hoping for two things. Firstly, to weaken your faith, to discourage your faith and to sabotage your testimony. He's hoping that your response will make you less confident in future, that it won't turn into a story of God's provision and power for those around you. And secondly, he's hoping to discredit God's name for those who are looking on. Because if you are seen as somebody who believes in God and yet your troubles are bigger than your God, what's that going to say to people? They're going to say, you're the same as me. There's no reason for your faith. There's no reason for your God. But if you can say in this situation, no, I've got reason to be fearful right now, but I've got more reason to be hopeful. I've got more reason to be confident. That's when that turns into a testimony. It, that Christian boldness turns into a power that can transform, firstly, your experience of what's going on, secondly, the spiritual reality of what's going on, and thirdly, the witness of those who are looking on. So when suffering comes against you, you can instead say, you know what, my God is bigger than my problems. There's no reason for me to be happy. There's no reason for me to feel blessed, to have peace, to still feel joy in this moment. And there's no reason for me to be doing anything other than being overcome with fear right now. But no, my confidence is in Jesus. My boldness comes from the Spirit of God. My fear is there, but the shouts of fear cannot compete with the whispers of my comforter. And I know he will be victorious in this situation. Maybe not how we expect, but he will come through. And that's the power of Christian boldness. And I wonder, to what Christian boldness is God calling you today? 
right, I'm probably running short of time, but I, I wanted to explore this um, word for boldness because really it's, it's quite an incredible word, so we'll, we'll do it quickly. Uh, but it's the, it's the word tharseo, uh, or tharsos is the, is the noun, if we can put that up on the, on the next slide. Now, the most common usage of this is when you're kind of encouraging someone to have courage. They're about to enter the battlefield to take on an enemy, and they say, Braveheart style, you know, have courage. The day will be yours. But Aristotle has some ideas on this verb about us when it was used in a religious context, which are uh, really quite incredible. So in connection with religious motivation, I kind of think of this as a bit of a Christian superpower, right? And, and really, all of the fruits of the Spirit are Christian superpowers, right? Thank you. It's described by the philosopher Aristotle as a change of mind about your situation. Okay, specifically, it's the recognition that firstly, the resources at your disposal are superior to the powers of the threat. Let me say that again. It's the recognition that the resources at your disposal are more than you need to overcome the situation that is coming against you. And secondly, confidence being the opposite of fear, it's a recognition that the source of your hope and your confidence is nearer to you than the source of your fear. That's on the, on the next, next slide there. All right, the resources at your disposal are more than you need to overcome the situation that's coming against you. And the source of your hope and your confidence is nearer to you than the source of your fear. I promised I would tell you a, a story, and um, on Friday night, I was terrified, sick to my stomach, terrified, for a good hour and a half. So I'd taken my, um, my kids off to the supermarket. It was about seven o'clock at night. It was a daddy dinner night, so we were doing an easy one, because mum's unwell, daddy's just going to get something easy, and then we'll have a movie and, and go to bed. I'm walking into the supermarket, holding my son like this, um, my daughter in tow. I'm wearing thongs, and there is a pool of unseen water. Unseen is the most dangerous kind. I'm wearing my thongs, and I enter, and I slip on the water, and as I go down, I didn't lose hold of my son. I landed on my shoulder, and then I heard the most awful sound of my son's head smacking on the ground. For those of you who are, I can tell a lot of you are parents because that's an awful sound to hear. He started crying straight away. He was, he was screaming. And I hopped up and just, you know, my gut started turning. Um, and there was a frantic, panicked couple of minutes where I was trying to communicate with the Coles staff what had happened. I was like, there's a pool of water. I've slipped on it. My son smashed his head. I need to call an ambulance. So I'm standing outside of Coles, I've got my son resting on this shoulder, screaming in a lot of pain. I've got the phone on this hand trying to talk to triple zero to tell them what's going on. I've got this beautiful, but at that point, very irritating Coles lady <laughs> trying to ask me what's going on, where to, where to tell the ambulance to go, um, get my details because she needs to fill in an incident report. You know, I've got screaming in one ear, I've got the triple zero in the other, and it's just an awful situation. 
My daughter is uh, there. Who knows what she's thinking? I don't. I tell you, the next hour and a half, for both Beck and me, our guts were just churning because it's the one thing you don't want to have as a parent. And to be honest, I don't get scared very easily. No, nothing really phases me. Um, I don't mind, you know, heights and you know, adventure and, and things like that. But since becoming a parent, all of my fears kind of revolve around things that could happen to your kids. And when it's when it's their head, and you don't know what's going on, that's a, that's a fearful situation. And so we spent the next hour and a half just kind of trying to deal with this, just kind of being sick with fear, what's, what's going on. Let me put your mind at ease. He's fine. <laughs> okay. We can get through this story and you should know that he's fine. But you know what? We were there and we were spending time and energy that we didn't have. And it was meant to be an easy night of dinner and it ended up being uh, hours in, in a hospital waiting room. And uh, there was a moment when we needed to decide to show this Christian boldness and to not let the fear take over what was going on, but to know that God was bigger than those problems. And that moment happened in the loading dock of Coles at Mount Omni, where we were waiting for the, um, the ambulance to show up. And can I just um, take a minute to say thank you to our friends and family who stepped in at that point? We really appreciate you and we love the community here and, and the support that we get through that. So those people know who they are, we just thank you. But there was a moment when my wife and I, between screaming child, well he, he had settled down by that, between a child who was clearly distraught, our daughter who was totally amused with the free bottles of water that we got because Coles was worried that we are going to sue them, <laughs> where we had to decide that, you know what, we're going to trust God in this situation. Because the source of our confidence, the source of our hope is nearer to us than the source of our fear. I'd like to tell you that our boldness in that situation led the Coles lady to Christ, but it didn't happen. I think it was mostly for us, because we had peace. And as we had the ambulance ride, he, he bounced back, he recovered, and he was his normal self. Typical child, you take them to the doctor and they make you look like a totally overreactive parent, he was fine. We saw the doctor and it took her about three minutes to say, you can go home, he's okay. Huge relief. So here's where it comes to for us. Being a Christian doesn't exempt you from suffering and it doesn't exempt you from situations that should leave you distraught and fearful. But the nearness of Christ provides purpose to those moments. It provides peace where otherwise there would be none. It builds the testimony to the goodness of God and strengthens faith. Not to mention that God can and does overcome these situations with a miracle. But perhaps the first step towards that miracle is recognizing that God is present in Jesus. And I might get the, um, uh, is it Amy on keys this morning to come up? All right, perhaps the first step towards that miracle is recognizing that God is present in Jesus. He is nearer to you than the cause of your fear. In fact, nothing can get nearer to you than him. He's nearer than the tumor on your brain, nearer than the cancer in your body, nearer than the grief of loss, nearer than the pain of separation, nearer than the bruises of abuse. 
And God is more powerful than any of those things. He's the God who knitted together the human body, who knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man, and who is powerful to overcome all things. And thirdly, God sees your need and it will not be unmet. Sometimes it's not how you think, but the Lord will always, always come through. This, friends, is the lesson of the bread. And it's a tough lesson because it's one only learned through experience and not through intellect. You can't fathom this stuff until you've been through it. But once you've been through it, that gives you confidence for the next situation. And once you've been through that, that gives you confidence for the next situation. And once you've been through that, that gives you confidence for the next situation until eventually there's going to be such a powerful testimony of God's goodness that it's going to transform the people and the world around you. You know, when you've actually decided that you're going to trust Jesus in this situation, some pretty incredible things start to happen. A shift occurs in the actual reality going on around you because your boldness actually overcomes the schemes of the enemy that come against you. Did you realize it was that easy? Because once the enemy realizes that he can't get at your faith, he can't get at how securely God is holding on to you and how securely you're holding back onto him, his schemes are worthless. They're meaningless. They don't come to anything. That's the power that you have to overcome. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hold on to Christ. And you'll wear him out. He won't have the strength to face you again. He knows, I can't get at them. That's the power of our Christian boldness this morning. And I wonder to what kind of Christian boldness is God causing you this morning? There are obviously lots of situations and and lots of needs going on here. But God is with you. He will never let you down. His power is more than you need. He is nearer to you than any of that pain and any of that fear. And just as we close this morning, I'll ask you to just close your eyes and and bow your heads. As usual, we'll have prayer in the last song and after the service. So if you have needs that we can bring to the Lord together, then you can respond in prayer. It'll be over uh, to the side and we can stand with you and pray boldness and confidence and courage into your situation. But perhaps you've been here this morning and, and something has kind of made sense to you for the first time. Maybe you've not really understood what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Well, let me tell you what it means. It means that you're broken, but you're forgiven. It means that you were lost, but you were found. It means that you were once incomplete, but now you are made whole. And if you want that, if you know that that's not you this morning, then perhaps God is calling you to make that faith step in response to Jesus. And I would just encourage you that while every eye is closed right now and while every head is bowed, that if God is asking you to make that decision, might you just raise your hand and say that you want to accept Jesus today. No one's going to embarrass. No one's going to call you to the front. We just want to be able to to support the decision and to know what it is you're talking about. So if there's anyone here who's in that situation and you know what, you say, I need Jesus because what I'm going through at the moment is more than I can take, then he's available. Would you just stick up your hand now?
All right, thank you. Thank you. While all our eyes are closed, we're just going to lead in a prayer. And if you've made that decision today, then would you just um, speak this along with everyone else? We say this in, in unison as a, as a marker of support. So would you, would you pray after me? Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I thank you for forgiving me. I thank you for coming close to me, for changing my heart and helping me to understand your plan for me and your plan for our world. Please enter into my life with your grace and your peace and transform my life according to your goodness. Amen.